And when people's mouths are hanging open, you can hear the breathing that they're doing going back and forth makes a little gurgling, bubbling sound when it goes over those secretions. So you're going to hear it almost sounds like that person's drowning. It can be very upsetting, the sound. I'm Suzanne O'Brien, former hospice and oncology nurse, and now the founder of the International Doula Givers Institute. My life's purpose is to teach others how to care for those at the end of life. So if you are a family member wanting to learn how to care for someone you love at the end of life, or you are someone who wants to be a professional end of life practitioner, this is the place for you. So sit back, get a cup of tea and relax. This is the Ask a Death Doula podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ask a Death Doula. This is such an important podcast, pain management at the end of life. And I want to start out by acknowledging how difficult it is to care for somebody, to even think about somebody that we love at the end of life. And right now, I can honestly say from my experience as a hospice and oncology nurse that most end of lives are not going well. I also want to share with you as a hospice nurse, 98% of the hands-on care is done by families, 98%. And the medications are one of the most feared and missed areas of care. So we're going to cover it. We're going to break it all down. We're going to give you the tools that you need to not be afraid and to know what to do with pain management, how it works and how you can keep your loved one comfortable at the end of life, which is our responsibility and so very important, right, for us to do. So I I love you so much and I want to acknowledge how hard this is, but it doesn't have to be. And I think what's happening right now, if I may, is that end of lives are not going well and and the whole the whole experience surrounding death is so challenging and not going well. And one of the main reasons for that is that we're not talking about it. We're not educating, we're not empowering people. And yet again, I had just said that even as a hospice nurse, 98% of the care, even with hospice on board is done by family members. I'm supposed to teach the loved ones how to do that care, which is virtually impossible when I'm there for one hour, once a week. It's just, there's so many breakdowns in the system, but we're going to help to change that, right? So pain management, is so critically important. So the first thing that I want to do is just give an overview of pain at the end of life and and, and acknowledge this space that we're in together is that your loved one has an end of life diagnosis. Your loved one is on hospice care. They're going to be dying no matter what you do. Because I hear family members say, well, I don't want to give them the medicine because I don't want that to be something that hastens their end of life or or creates their end of life, it's not going to. It's not going to. One of the key things is to understand how to do pain management properly and medication administration, which your hospice nurse should be teaching and reteaching you until you're fully comfortable. But also the fact of this reality is that your loved one is counting on you and they're going to be having their end of life. And yes, There are pain issues that can be associated with disease processes at the end of life. There are breathing issues. 
that can happen at the end of life. And these medications are critical and vital for comfort. So we want to make sure that you're comfortable with how to use them and when, um, so that you can allow that person you love to have a comfortable end of life. They're going to either die suffering or in pain or die comfortable with your support. And of course, we want to do everything to have it be a comfortable end of life. So I want to just acknowledge that giving pain medication as prescribed will not hasten a death, only support it to be a peaceful one. So it won't bring about a death. It won't happen. And again, the key that I just said there is giving pain medication as prescribed, knowing how to do it. Uh, the second thing that usually comes up from families is addiction. So I want to cover two parts of addiction. Number one, families will say, well, I, these are a lot of these are narcotic medications. And they said, well, I don't want them to get addicted to the medicine. So let's just settle back into what's happening here. The reality of what's going on at this very moment, your loved one has an end of life process. Can these medications be addictive? Yes, in certain scenarios when they're not being used to treat pain, when they're being overly prescribed. There's a whole reason why um, addictions do occur. This is not one of those scenarios. You have somebody at the end of life, they're not gonna become addicted to these medications. They're going to, again, use properly, help them to have a comfortable end of life. Now, I want to talk to you about what happens if your loved one has a history of addiction. And I want to also say I know how intense that journey can be. I've worked with many a family with addiction uh, as being part of their journey with somebody. And it's, you know, it's the it's very intense and it has many layers and they're they're afraid that that person has past addiction problems. They've been sober now that this could reignite that addiction. Well, again, we have to remember where we are in this immediate part of the journey that that person's at the end of life. So they're not going to all of a sudden be, you know, addicted and running out in the streets and looking for more medication. They're at the end of their life and we want them to have a comfortable end of their life. So again, that's not really a factor at this moment. I understand how much it can trigger for families, but again, it's a question of whether your loved one's gonna be comfortable or suffering at the end of life. And of course we want them to be comfortable. So we don't have to worry about pain addiction. We don't have to worry about reawakening an addiction for somebody at the end of life. So that is incredibly important. Now I want to talk to you about the two main types of pain that you can experience or you can have a loved one experience at the end of life. One is what you call somatic pain. And it's the one that we typically are most aware of. So, and it's the one that's treated typically with a narcotic medicine. And that is muscle pain and just different pains in the body um, that can be again, treated with narcotic medicine. And then there's a second type of pain. And that is nerve pain. And why that's so critically important is because you can throw as much narcotic medicine at nerve pain and it won't touch it and it won't touch it. And I've had this, I'm gonna tell you a story in a minute about a hospice uh, patient and this exact uh, scenario. But I wanna tell you that you wanna always ask your loved one, you wanna do great 
logging. You want to do recording of, of, you know, where is the pain? What number is the pain? So you ask your loved one, if 10 could be the, the most intense pain that you could ever imagine and zero, obviously being no pain, where on that spectrum of a one to, ten, one to 10 pain scale is your pain? Let's just say I'm asking my mom. Okay. And so my mom says it's at a five. And then I ask her, well, where, where is it located? And she says in her side. And I said, what does it feel like? Is it a throbbing pain? Is it a dull pain? Is it a consistent pain where, uh, or is it intermittent where it's coming and going? Or is it a fire pain? Is it like fire ants or a stabbing feeling? Because the nerve pain is like fire ants. It's very different. It is like a fiery, um, stabbing, you know, again, people describe it as fire ants. And, and here's the, really the thing that I want you to hear is that you could throw as much narcotic at nerve pain and it won't touch the nerve pain. It will get people sleepy and groggy, but it won't do anything for the pain. You need a specific medication that covers nerve pain. And so I want to share with you a patient that I had on hospice and you just fall in love with your families all of the time. That's, I mean, it's just such an honor to be working in this space with them. And I came in to see her. She was 80 years old. She had lung cancer as her primary diagnosis. And when I came in to assess her, I was asking her about pain. She said, yeah, I have head pain. I have a really bad head pain. Um, and she described it as an eight out of 10, which is like, you know, super, super high. And she was on so much when I got her, she was on so much morphine already that literally when I did my, we do, uh, when we get new patients on hospice, we do an interdisciplinary meeting once a week. And we talk about our patients, the medical directors there, everyone's there, social workers. And when I was telling this about this new admission and telling what medication she was on, I remember the medical director raising her head and saying, she is on all of that morphine. Like that's a lot. She was on a lot of morphine and she still had this huge head pain. So typically lung cancer does not present with a lot of pain. It does have a lot of weakness to it. And that's a good thing. The narcotic medicine was to address her head pain that she was having consistently and so after we, you know, I went to her and I'm just assessing her and really trying to get to the root of it. I asked her more questions, you know, what did it feel like? What does this pain feel like? And she said, it feels like stabbing. It feels like stabbing in my head, which gosh, that has to be incredibly awful. And then she was talking more and I was looking through her chart and it had said that she had had shingles, um, a not too long before she was admitted to hospice, but like within the last year, she had had an episode of shingles. Well, this is shingles is nerve pain. This pain in her head was a nerve pain that was a result of the shingles. And so I asked the doctor to please prescribe nerve medicine for her. We got her that nerve medicine within two days, her pain went down to like a three. And she was able to start eating again. She was able to start, she loved tuna fish sandwiches and milk, don't judge, and watching her soap operas. So she was able to get a quality of her life back and we were able to reduce that morphine, but also more importantly, get that pain down in her head that allowed her to be present with her two daughters, allowed her to enjoy the food, enjoy 
watching her shows. This is critically important. So again, there's two types of pain, somatic, which narcotic will cover, which is the most typical by the way, or nerve pain. And I will tell you the rule of thumb is this. If your loved one is not seeing results with narcotic medicine, with pain medicine, dig deeper, really try and identify again, what does that pain feel like and see if it is possibly fire ants, a stabbing, um, that kind of a nerve pain description and then try nerve medicine because that's probably the key to it. So you wanna ask, what is the pain like? Is it intermittent? Is it constant? Is it throbbing? Is it stabbing? Is it dull? Where is it located? And then write that in a logbook. And then before you give the prescribed medicine from the doctor, so I'm going to use my mom's example. She tells me she has a pain of, let's say six, right? In her side, it's dull, it's constant. Um, she give her the medicine. And then 45 minutes to an hour later, after the medicine is administered, you ask her mom, where's your pain now? And she said, it's at a three. And so we know that that dose is a therapeutic dose and that we logged, you know, how it worked. This could change. So tumors grow, things grow with people at the end of life, pain, you know, changes, it can become more painful. There are times at the end of life that sometimes pain gets less and that's a beautiful thing, but we want to be on top of it. Why? Because this is about quality of life. And so we want to make sure it's in a therapeutic range, a therapeutic range is to keep pain at a three, four on a pain scale of zero to 10. Here's what I want you to know is that when pain, and this is the key to pain management, when pain is on its way up, so you know when you have that headache or something that's growing, growing, when pain is on its way up the scale, you have got to cut it off. You've got to cut it off at a three, four. If it gets too high, and it, make, it breaks my heart to say this, when it gets too high, and I've had patients who have said, well, um, you know, they don't have anything, they're at end of life and they feel that they don't have control, right? And I understand that. And one of the things maybe is the only thing that they have control over is whether or not they take their pain medicine or not, they decide to take it or not. And I've had many of them say, no, I don't need it, I don't need it. And then finally that pain's at a seven and an eight and they say, okay, I'll take my medicine now. Like just desperate. And guess what happens? Guess what happens? That pain medicine will not work. If pain gets ahead of you and gets too high up, that prescribed dosaging will not be able to bring that pain medicine down. It'll, it'll feel like forever and it is forever. The key is to stay ahead of the pain. And that's why you want to ask your mother every four hours, whatever it is that you feel several times a day, even if she doesn't have a history of pain, because it can come about and we want to be ahead of it. So we want to make sure that we understand how pain works and how good pain management works. And that management works that you've got to cut that pain off before it starts getting past a four or five, because if it does, the prescribed medicine will not work and it will be terrible and it will seem like forever. So you want to evaluate, you want to know how it works. You want to ask what type of pain that is, and then keep a great logbook. Why do you think that it's important to keep a really good logbook of pain levels when, when the medication has been administered an hour later, what 
result of that medication um, has had, what effect that's had. Why do you think that's a really important thing to do for someone at the end of life? So that you can see if it's working so that the hospice nurse can come in and that she, she or he can see right away what pain medicine has been given. But also there are different people that are going to be caregivers that are coming in and you want to keep a continuity. You want to keep a logbook of certain things like pain assessment, sleep habits, eating, you know, comfort levels so that anyone who's coming in to care for that loved one, which by the way, you're going to need multiple people. It shouldn't be one person can see at a glance how mom's been doing this week. Has her pain improved? Has her sleeping improved? All of the things that we really want to know for optimal comfort. Okay. So I want to talk to you now about the hospice comfort kit. And I want to give you a few really good tools for the comfort kit. The hospice comfort kit is a group of medications when somebody's admitted to hospice that is sent to the house um, for, again, pain management, quality of life. There's things for anxiety in there. We're going to cover a few of the most important medications in there. This is my rule of thumb. As a hospice nurse, as a death doula doula giver, I want that comfort kit in the home within 24 hours of a hospice admission. And I won't budge on that. Let me ask you this question. What about if this person has no history of pain and they don't have, the, they're admitted to hospice and they don't have a comfort kit? No big, is it a big deal? No big deal. They don't have a history of pain. You know, maybe we're not going to have pain. Why do I need that comfort kit in the house? You need that comfort kit in the house. End of life can move very, very quickly. And I will tell you at two in the morning when your mother is calling out because she's having pain at two o'clock in the morning, if she's calling out because she can't breathe because all of a sudden her breathing has changed and you don't have that comfort kit in the house, it is going to seem like an eternity before you get it. And the medications that are in the comfort kit are triplicate prescriptions. Some of them are triplicate prescriptions. They're very hard to get. So you want to make sure you're on top of that. If you have an end of life patient, a hospice patient in the home, the hospice comfort kit should be in that home within 24 hours of admission. So what is in the comfort kit? There are several medications. I'm going to point out and highlight the three that I feel are the most important. And of course, if you could give me only one, it would be the liquid morphine, also known as Roxanol, because it's not only good for pain, it's great for shortness of breath. So the hospice comfort kit has several different medications in it. It's got something for pain. It's got something for agitation, anxiety. It's got something for nausea. Um, it also has things that are known as antipsychotics, things for drying up secretions, and for uh, fever. And I'm gonna be very honest with you. And I have many, I've been honored and privileged to be with over a thousand people at the end of life. Many of these medications I don't use in the comfort kit. I haven't had to use, or they haven't had great success. The ones that are super important is that liquid morphine, the Roxanol, that is a narcotic because it's great for pain. It's short acting, which means that it acts quickly and leaves quickly. And it's great for shortness of breath, which really does come about in many disease processes at the end of life. So liquid morphine, also known as Roxanol, my favorite. If you could give me one medication at the end of life, that would be it. 
The other thing that I really love is a anti-nausea medication. And that is also known as an anti-emetic. Why? Have you ever had the flu or food poisoning or something where you were so nauseous that you just wanted to die? It was just the worst. Well, it can rival pain. Nausea can rival pain. It's different, but it can be just as debilitating. And many times people have been on chemo and they have nausea issues that they come on end of life with. Well, we want their quality of life. The goal is this, to have the highest quality of life every single day. So that anti-emetic is a compound. And I want to tell you why this is critically important that it's a compound. Nausea travels three separate pathways to the brain to say I'm nauseous. So sometimes it's from the gut. Sometimes it's from different areas of the body. There are medications that are used for nausea that cover a specific pathway. So many times I've had patients that have come on hospice services and I said, you know, are you having any nausea? And they say, well, yeah, but I took my nausea medicine um, already. So they kind of dismiss it like, well, it's just tough luck. It's, it's just not working, I, you know, and that's not the case. The case is that the medicine that they have that they came onto hospice services with is covering a pathway that is not the pathway that's making them nauseous. And so this compound anti-nausea that's in the comfort kit covers all three pathways. It's brilliant. If you give somebody back the ability to not be nauseous, right? And then they can start eating again, then they have a little more energy and they're enjoying visits again. Like the, the quality of life is the goal here. So that compound anti-nausea, sometimes it's in cream, sometimes it's a patch, sometimes it's in a little pill that can go under the tongue, is critically important and has really changed people's um, experiences at the end of life. So again, I'm gonna highlight roxanol liquid morphine for pain, for breathing issues, compound anti-nausea, very important because it gives quality of life back. And then the third one that I'll just mention Lorazepam, known as Ativan, is for agitation. I have to tell you honestly, and I've had quite an extensive amount of experience. I have not had great luck with Ativan. In fact, it's used for anti-anxiety. Sometimes it can create a rebound anxiety effect. So I think that we want to, I'm always a use medications last and also very uh, gingerly so that you can assess what's being used. And so I, you know, you just, you just want to be conservative and you can always put more medicine into somebody. A doctor can prescribe more. You can't take it out. So again, I'm going to be very honest that I haven't had a ton of success with Ativan lorazepam. However, at the very end of life, Roxanol, liquid morphine, and lorazepam, they have a synergistic effect. And if somebody's having a lot of breathing, labored, and, and pain issues, sometimes these can work synergistically, meaning roxanol's being given, and then two hours later, maybe some Ativan's give it, being given, and they can have a synergistic good effect if that's what's needed at the end. But for the most part, uh, I tend to not use Ativan or lorazepam unless it's, you know, really, really needed. And um, I haven't had personally a lot of great success with it. Sometimes, again, all you need is the liquid morphine that relaxes somebody, takes their pain down. The other thing that's in there is something called a Tylenol suppository. And Tylenol brings down fever. There are times at the end of life that somebody can present 
with a high fever. And I want to let you know it's happening at the end of life. At the end of life, the person's hypothalamus, which is in the brain and regulates the body temperature, everything's not working well, right? So we're starting to shut down. We're starting to decline. The body is just not working the way a healthy body does. And so sometimes people can present with a high fever, like 102.8. Um, but at this point, they're in a deep sleep coma. So it's not that they're awake and feeling this. They're in that sleep state coma that is the couple of days before the body actually dies. And so the body's shutting down and families can get quite concerned that there's a fever presenting with that person. And here's my rule of thumb is that I never want to do anything to somebody that's invasive that is not needed. It is not needed. And first, I would like to share with the family that the person is not feeling that temperature. And second of all, that maybe we can take the blanket off, expose the feet, put a cold cloth over the forehead. Maybe a Tylenol suppository is not what's needed. However, if the family insists or somebody thinks that that, like a doctor, thinks that that's something that we need to do, the family can simply insert with a little bit of the lubricant um, into the rectum, the Tylenol suppository, and that will bring down the fever. But again, I think the most important thing to understand here is that the person is not suffering. Not everyone gets a high fever, so don't, don't worry about that. But also the most important thing is that they're not feeling that. The person is not suffering. So what I like in that comfort kit, liquid morphine roxanol, anti-emetics, the compound, anti-nausea, the Tylenol suppository if you need it, and they do have lorazepam Ativan for agitation or again, that synergistic effect at the end of life with the combination of Roxanol. A couple hours later, the um, Ativan sometimes that just has like a really calming effect in that very last stage of the end of life journey. So you wanna know that. The other things that are in the comfort kit tend to be antipsychotic medication, scopalamine patches, Haldol drops to to dry up secretions at the end of life, you're going to hear um, almost like a wet gurgling sound at the end of life. And I'm gonna be very honest with you here. I have never had any luck with these scopalamine or Haldol drops ever. In fact, if we don't have them in the comfort kit and I have to go get them from a pharmacy, by the time I'm on my way to the pharmacy to get them, the patient has died. So this is what I'm going to teach you to do. If somebody at the end of life, and I want to tell you what's happening here so you have an understanding. At the end of life, you and I are swallowing. We're healthy people. We're swallowing periodically. At the end of life, when somebody, everything is going flaccid, the secretions are building up, right? So they're building up right at the breastbone. And everything is starting to go flaccid while people's mouths are hanging open. And when people's mouths are hanging open, you can hear the breathing that they're doing going back and forth makes a little gurgling, bubbling sound when it goes over those secretions. So you're gonna hear it almost sounds like that person's drowning. It can be very upsetting, the sound. In the medical profession, which I, we have to change terminology in so many ways and phrasing of what we do, it can be known as the death rattle. It's a very close sign that somebody's getting very close to that time of death. I think that's a terrible term. But it's what it, what it is is secretions literally pooling here as that person's mouth is hanging open, their breathing is going back and forth and you hear a little gurgling bubble sound. They are not feeling this, they are not suffering. And so what are the things that I have figured out 
that can easily, without the scopolamine patch or Haldol drops or any of that, is take the person, take a pillow the long way, take a, a pillow the long way, fold it in half, have the person at about a 45 degree um, with their head 45 degree in their hospital bed, turn the person on their side and put that pillow right behind them. So they're literally at an angle now. So the person is at an angle and that dislodges those secretions. So they're right here. It dislodges those secretions. That sound will immediately stop. Within seconds, that sound will immediately stop. Now, if it tends to build up again when they're on their side, put them on their other side. I will tell you, usually at this point, that person will have their end of life. But this is something that is a technique that will immediately stop that sound. And again, you can do it within seconds. So that is where I've had the most luck, but do not be afraid. Know that it's a very late sign and that person is usually very close within hours to the time of their end of life. So what can you do to be great at pain management for your loved one? You wanna make sure that the hospice kit is delivered and in the home within 24 hours of your loved one being admitted to hospice services. Number two, you want to make sure to have the hospice nurse teach and reteach you how to use the medication and when. Ask her to watch you draw up the medications so that you know the correct dosaging. The time that your loved one is screaming in pain is not the time to learn this. Proper use of medication is the most missed learning area of hospice families. Not knowing how to utilize the hospice comfort kit has devastating consequences for the end of life journey. It usually is where the family is not comfortable giving the medication, so they don't give the medication. So, you know, I've been told that it takes seven times to learn something repeatedly. Please know to have your hospice nurse teach you and reteach you and ask, let her see you draw up the medication so that you know that you are confident in how to do that. We talked about the top three medications that you need to know um, that are really important in that kit are the liquid morphine. If you can give me one medication, it's liquid morphine. What is it good for? Pain and it's short acting. So what does that mean? It acts quickly and it leaves quickly. What is the second use for it? Breathing issues. So you're going to be grateful that you have liquid morphine. Person does not need to know how to swallow or be awake to even have the benefits. It can go under the tongue or in the cheek of the mouth. Then we have the antiemetic compound for nausea, covers all three pathways. And of course, Ativan for agitation, um, but also has a synergistic effect with morphine at the end of life. Ask your hospice nurse to teach you about that. Make sure, number four, make sure to understand what sublingual medications are and how they work. Sublingual means below the tongue, this is great. Why? Because one of the first signs that somebody is getting ready to have their end of life go into their transition phase is that they stop being able to swallow. They stop being able to swallow. And if they've had pain and they have other issues and they only have pill form, you're going to find yourself in a very, very difficult situation. So you want to make sure that you have these medications and that they are sublingual and know how that works. It can go under the, the tongue or in the cheek of the mouth. It gets absorbed by the membranes. The person does not have to have to have the ability to swallow. They don't even have to be awake. So understanding what those are and how they work, how they're administered. And again, this is vital to um, 
a positive end of life and keep a record. Number five, keep a really good logbook, creating a record of when each medication or supply was given, what dose can help ensure that the patient's care is consistent and effective. This record can also be helpful in communicating with hospice providers or any other part of the care team. So I just want to honor you for caring for your loved one. I want to thank you for showing up. I honestly know that this is one of the most important things that we will ever be asked to do is to show up and care for someone we love at the end of life. Knowing how to do that changes everything. Your loved one is dying and they are either going to just remember this, die comfortable and without a lot of pain, or they are going to die within pain. We of course want them to be comfortable, dignified, and have that positive end of life. And when you confidently know how to administer the medications, you're supporting your loved one in one of the most important times of their life to have a peaceful end of life experience for not just them, for everyone involved. We can do this and we can do this together. If you have any questions, let me know. Remember that we have free trainings coming up soon. I will put the links below. If you are a family member who wants to learn how to care for your loved one in the three phases of end of life, or you are somebody who is interested in being a death doula practitioner, both of those webinars are coming up shortly. I have the links below. Please put any questions that you want. I want to thank you and I want to remind you that we are here together and together we can make end of life the sacred, natural experience it was meant to be. Thank you so much for listening. This was Ask a Death Doula. I'll see you in the next episode, everyone. Thanks. Thank you so much for being part of Ask a Death Doula podcast. Please remember that everyone everywhere has the ability to have the good death with the right education, kindness, and support. See you in the next episode.